Hi, Victoria. Nice picture. Oh, thank you. Yeah, nice, nice, sad but important picture. Yeah, it is. Nice to meet you. Hi, Adam. Hi, Adam. Um, to unmute, uh, there's all the way on the bottom right, there's a little microphone symbol. If you oh, I see. That. Yep. Got it. Perfect. Can you hear me now? It worked. Yep. Excellent. So if you want to um, check out really quick um, how the audience sees your slides, mm -hmm. um, on top you see the slides posted as a link. Uh, so yep. click on it and it says go to link and then people can can then see your slides uh, and yeah. scroll through them. So when you switch slides, it's really helpful to mention it. Um, okay. You're switching. Okie dokie. And then um, is the camera on? Am I seeing the people? Do people see me? How does this work? Oh, we see you. We see everything. Like we got a webcam installed. No. Okay. <laughs> we, it's just audio. Uh, oh, it's just audio. And okay. relax, walk around. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Curlers in your pajamas. <laughs> oh, this is, can I play video games while Do I'm doing it? <laughs> yeah. That's my standard. Whenever I'm on a meeting that, I, usually I'm not talking, but whenever I'm on a meeting, I don't really want to pay attention to it. I just play video games while I'm on it. Don't tell anyone I said that though. No, it's, it's, it's a secret. <laughs> Recorded for posterity. <laughs> but, but Adam, if you'd like, you can put a photo. Um, in place of your initials, which are also lovely, but your choice. Maybe you uh, like a live. Where do I, where does If this, you I do mean, a long press on your, on your biopic, which is your initials right there with the little party. Uh, I don't see, I don't see my, my initials. So, okay. Okay. Do, what do you see on the screen? Do you see Katarina and then. I see Katarina and I see Science Society, Dr. Frank. And then, yeah, that's. I don't see anything that that I don't see anything that indicates me. Are you on Club Deck? I'm on. Who the heck knows? Are you on? Are you? <laughs> oh on wait, a, there's a, there is. Wait, wait, there is a there is a a down at the lower right. Okay, so I can add a picture, but I don't know. I don't even have any pictures on my. I don't know what. Well, you can download some. Okay, I mean, there's no pressure. It's just fun. If you'd if it if it is a fun thing, or you can you can. Um, get something off the internet or or take a screenshot of your work or some anything anything it's a free expression okay there we go i just looked up oh, there we go i'm done okay that's me bum -ba -dum -bum. all right okay so now, now there I'm we a, are now i'm a person <laughs> yeah like for a future use if you want to use clubhouse you know, in the future, it's helpful to have like some information and the picture, so people know you're you're an actual human and not just a bot that comes. Right, in. right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to be honest. I probably, unless somebody makes me use this, I won't be using this software. It's like I've already got. I have too much software in my life. But uh, but at least now I know. In case anybody else wants to use, wants me to use Clubhouse. Well, you might want to come back, Adam. That's well. That's <laughs> another possibility. <laughs> Sure. That can, that we hope. So, what are what is your group? Tell me more about your group while we're setting up in the, in the minute we have. Yeah. So, um, so it's a mixed story of uh, Clubhouse itself. It started kind of during COVID. Uh, people were shut down at home, and then this app started 
used to be invitation only so uh, so people would like it it became to be like a close-knit community in the beginning with a lot of conversations about everything and uh, when I joined, which was a little bit later, like not right in the beginning, uh, people used to ask me a lot about scientific stuff. <clears throat> and, you know, just because I was a scientist doesn't mean I know, <laughs> I know about science in general. Right. Um, so I started inviting people um, to give more of an expert answer instead of me life googling and reading really quick and then giving an answer <laughs> and yeah and then it started into a thing and then uh, i created this club where i where I, where we do this as a group um in general like that's great i'll share suggestions or i read like articles you know in the right, news, right. and then I look at the paper and then i invite the actual people that did the work because in the beginning, sometimes journalists would share, and I feel felt very often it was relatively incorrectly with the little I even knew about some scientific fields. I kind of figured that it was not really 100% correct all the time. So yeah, I started inviting the actual scientists. And right, right. Go now there are a few it. more clubs that are doing this, so um, that kind of do a mix of you know, popular science, news, journalists, and um, researchers. But I try to keep it uh, just researchers because I don't want people to that that are not scientists to kind of get mixed up. Like right. this person is just as reliable the information as this person. And in a lot of fields, I can just tell, you know, if people are talking nonsense or not. So I rely on just inviting the people that, you know, wrote exactly. the paper. Yeah, and, right, and, right. <laughs> just, I need to do less fact-checking. <laughs> yeah, so this is, and then, yeah, and then people gave really good feedback, and it's a really mixed audience. And um, cool. some people even started going back to school because of our club. Because of the, oh, what a great, yeah, what a great outcome. Yeah. Like they, because it felt very different to regular academia learning, they kind of got motivated to learn by themselves about stuff. Um, yeah, and then went back to school and stuff. So yeah, cool. okay. it's been really nice. All right. Okay, I think we can start. So okay. I apologize in advance. Yesterday, I kind of started getting a huge coughing attack. If that happens, Victoria is here today to help out. It was very awkward that to like mute and get funny and stuff. So I hope it doesn't happen today. But Victoria is here. Yeah, I'll have to send you some lozenges. There's some <laughs> honey lozenges I keep on hand. Oh, yeah. yeah I yeah. don't know. I didn't have anything. Like the whole day I was fine. And then at night I started like, while well, I was talking, every time I started talking, I couldn't stop coughing. Anyhow. Welcome everyone uh, to Science Society and of course a special welcome to Adam here and before we start, I know people will continue coming in, but before we start, um, I want you to introduce Adam here um, to everyone <laughs> so you get to know him a little bit better and then Victoria uh, will ask a few interview questions, Adam, if that's okay with you to sure. get to know you even a little bit 
more. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so um, Adam, Dr. Adam Frank, he's an astrophysicist and he's a leading expert on the final stages of evolution for stars like the sun. And he, um, his uh, research group is a computational research group who has developed advanced uh, supercomputer tools for studying how stars form and how planets evolve. And his current work focuses on life in the universe and the search for techno signatures of other exo-civilizations along with climate change and the astrobiology of the Anthropocene. Sorry. Um, so he describes himself as an evangelist of science and he is um, very committed to show others the beauty and power of science and exploring the <clears throat> proper context of science and culture. Um, you should really check out his latest book, um, Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth. Um, that got praise from the New York Times, NPR, and Scientific American. And then he also wrote two other books, The Constant Fire, Beyond Religion and Science Debate, and About Time, Cosmology and Culture at the Twilight of the Big Bang. And um, <clears throat> Adam is currently finishing his next book, um, The Little Book of Aliens, uh, to be published soon. Um, like um, next year. <clears throat> and um, Adam is also um, a regular at, uh, air on-air commentator for CNN and um, for NPR, <clears throat> in all things considered. Um, and he was a co-founder of the um, National Public Radio 13.7 Cosmos and Culture blog, which he ran for seven years. And he is also a regular contributor to the New York Times, Atlantic, and other media outlets. And he also runs a 13.8 blog on bigthink.com. Um, he was a scientific consultant and in different shows. He was on the Joe Rogan show. And he got he received uh, many awards, um, including awards for his scientific and outreach uh, work. Um, and his latest book won the National Honor Society Best Book in Science Award. So um, yeah, I could go on and on for hours, <laughs> probably talking about your work and your achievements and um, everything. But uh, we. But cannot... then you sound like my mom. <laughs> that <laughs> which is fine i'm a mom he's an astrophysicist he's such a nice boy <laughs> i have three kids so i get it but um victoria usually does a really wonderful uh, job at interviewing <laughs> our guest speakers Thank so you. let's do it that way another <laughs> mom <laughs> so adam let's start with breakfast did you have it no i'm just <laughs> I did, Mom. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Restart. So, okay. welcome, Adam. Uh, yeah, thank you, Katarina. We are so happy to have you here in Science Society today. So, my question can be um, considered specific to your work or science in general. It is, I'd like to know if you can tell us about your remembrance of your entry point into science or 
the, your first initial spark. And so that, that question can be applied to you as a child or anywhere along your life. Okay. So I was five years old and I was in my dad's library, you know, in front of all of his books. And I pulled out, he, he had, he really was into pulp science fiction, like amazing stories and Isaac Asimov's, you know, you know, astounding worlds. And I was looking at the cover of one of them, which had like a guy in a spacesuit on like the jagged mountains of an alien planet. And that was it. I was just like, that's it for me, man. That's what I want to know about. And so I've never really had any other, there's never been anything I've ever wanted to do other than that. I actually really wanted to be a space pirate, but that's not an option for me. So I became an astrophysicist. I'm sure we're all glad that you decided to tread the straight and narrow. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a space pirate. <laughs> well, maybe you are in your own way, in your own interpretation. Of oh, space there we go. Mm, yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> I I would also imagine that many of us can remember being in a very special library. I was mm. I had that as well in mm. my house, and and um, some pretty amazing books that my mom yeah. and they were just like friends. Right. Right. You know, you just spend a lot of time with them and. And and so from from that childhood time, maybe you can take us along a um, you know in leaps a path up to the current work that you're going to present with us today. Uh, yeah, so you know I um, was you know read a lot of science and philosophy. I have a strong interest in philosophy. You know, going through high school, um, uh, discovered that actually my you know I really loved. The mathematical, the theoretical side, you know, not not the looking through telescopes. I was no good at that. So, uh, you know, got into college, focused on. Uh, I got a degree in math, mathematical physics or math and physics, um, and uh, went to. So that was undergraduate University of Colorado, graduate at the University of Washington in Seattle, um, and there is where I got. In, I got turned on to fluid dynamics and, and computational fluid dynamics. So I ended up, the bulk of my career was developing advanced tools, advanced computer programs for doing supercomputer simulations of things like star formation and um, stellar death. But I was always interested, I mean, the question of life was always paramount for me, like the existence of life anywhere else. This fundamental question of, are we the only time in the entire, and place in the entire universe that this very strange thing we called life has occurred was, you know, was always on my mind. So as the, um, as the astrobiology revolution uh, occurred in the 90s and the early 2000s, which was really centered on the discovery of exoplanets, we started discovering planets orbiting other stars, and we didn't know whether there were any before 1995, that I really started shifting my work towards the question about life and, and, um, and planets, I, you know. And so uh, I got started thinking about climate change as kind of an astrobiological phenomena. And that was what my last book was about. Uh, but that took me to thinking about just in general, how planets and life will evolve over billions of years. And particularly, you know, I've always been a big fan of what is called the Gaia hypothesis that, you know, you really life hijacks planets. Um, and so that is one of the, you know, these days I'm working on both, I have a NASA grant to study technosignatures, how you might find, you know, uh, evidence of civilizations or at least technology, technological deploying life elsewhere in the universe. But I'm also very interested in just the theoretical foundations of what life is. Um, and again, how life 
how biospheres and technospheres interact with the geospheres over long periods of, you know, billions of years. So that's kind of the work I'm going to be showing you today. Well, then we can't wait. So thank you. It, it's, it really just, it's like opens up your whole, the research and leads us into that okay. when we can hear your background, which, which right. thank you for all the details. So at this point, I will pass the mic back to you and you can deliver your talk and you see that you have your work is at the top so people can follow along. And then if you'd like to have a Q&A following oh, your yeah, discussion yeah. or along the way, that's up to you. And sometimes people will put questions in the room chat, which we can share with you as well. So all you need to do is enjoy uh, gaming and talking. <laughs> you're working to make, make sure you have water. <laughs> all right, thank you so much. Sure. Okay, so I'm gonna go, uh, I have until 10 to three when I have to go to a talk. Um, actually be physically present at a talk. So what I'm gonna do is I'll probably just spend the next 20 minutes kind of, you know, lightly going through these slides um, just to give you uh, everyone an idea of what this idea is. And then, yeah, let's spend 20 minutes talking, you know, doing questions and answers. So the idea here is planetary intelligence. So that's, the, that's my opening slide. I did this work with David Grinspoon and Sarah Walker who are both uh, astrobiologists. And so let's go to the next slide because this is the, the fundamental question, who and what has intelligence? And the idea is that, you know, conventionally, when we think about this, intelligence is a property that individuals have, like certainly adorable little babies have it, and maybe adorable um, uh, 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 dolphins have it. Um, but we also recognize that, you know, there's the possibility of collective intelligence as well. So social insects have, you know, make incredible decisions and choices you know, not as individuals, but as a collective unit. In many ways, you have to think of uh, the ant colony or the beehive as being the organism, not the individual ants or bees. So, you know, when we think about intelligence, it's not just something that necessarily sits uh, in heads on shoulders, but may be distributed. All right, so if we go to the next slide then. So, you know, one of the really amazing developments over the last 20 years in this study is the recognition that that, you know, systems that we didn't used to think had intelligence and by intelligence here, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more what we mean, but we're not necessarily thinking thoughts in the head. We're not thinking necessarily self-consciousness, um, but we're thinking about the ability to cognize, to recognize things that are happening in the environment and to respond to those things in the environment, perhaps in ways that, you know, demonstrate uh, you know, awareness, uh, you know, a deeper awareness of, of the uh, of the place in the environment. So, um, you know, the, mo the best example, the example I really love of this is trees, the, the discovery of what are called, if I can pronounce this correctly, mycosorial networks, the, the fungal networks that link the root systems of trees. And they essentially mean that forests that can stretch across hundreds of miles are kind of all linked. It's like, you know, people talk about the idea of a green mind. Whereas if one part of the forest is stressed, doesn't have, you know, the uh, resources, the other parts of the forest through the mycorrhizal network recognize it and, and, and will send that part of the forest aid, you know, the, the resources it needs. Um, also, you know, we know now that bacteria have do what's called quorum sensing. Bacteria, the bacterial colonies are aware of their environments and will respond to their environments. Slime molds can solve puzzles 
you know, can solve mazes. So, um, you know, all of this idea, this idea of collective intelligence and the idea that also, you know, intelligence can be distributed quite a bit across space and time, you know, leads us to the idea that intelligence broadly construed, right? Again, I'm not talking about self-conscious, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, thinking philo philosophical thoughts in your head. Um, I think we now have good evidence that it operates across diverse length and time scales. And so the question that we were asking in this paper is, can intelligence operate at a planetary scale, on scales across an entire world? And if so, how does that happen? How do you make a transition from just you know, individual organisms to something like planetary intelligence? So the idea here would be that, and this is something that goes back to like the Gaia hypothesis, you know, uh, the, the idea, and this is, we'll talk about this, but you know, I think we really now recognize that life is not just something that happens on a planet, it happens to a planet. Like once life forms and becomes robust enough on a world, then that the history of that world is forever changed. Okay. Life is not just some green scruff that's you know sitting on the surface of the world. It completely alters the functions of what we call the coupled planetary systems, atmosphere, hydrosphere, cryosphere, the ice, and the lithosphere, the the the, the surface. Um so we would, the question here is, is intelligence the same thing? Is intelligence something that does not just occur on a planet, but happens to a planet, altering the planet's history? So if we go to the next slide now. Uh, so one, you know, you might ask, well, why do you even want to ask this question? And you want to do it for actually three specific, this concept of planetary intelligence may prove useful for three distinct domains. And um, the first of these is uh, Earth systems and exoplanet studies. And that's just, you know, we um, uh, are studying, you know, we have all these planets, we're going to see there's all these planets we've discovered. We now know that every star in the sky has a family of worlds orbiting it. And we're very interested in whether or not those uh, planets have uh, life on them. Um, and this idea of planetary intelligence is relevant to that because we want to know how that intelligence involves, or we want to know how the life involves. And if there is intelligence, how does that intelligence evolve and change the planet's trajectory? So the idea that we have lots of planets to study now means we want to understand how planets and life evolve together. And that's the same thing for the Earth. If we look at back at Earth's deep history, the biosphere has been around for at least a couple of billion years, if not three billion years. And how has Earth's history been shaped by life and perhaps by this idea of a planetary intelligence? And then, so those are two, Earth systems and exoplanet studies. And then the other uh, why we're interested in this is the Anthropocene and uh, sustainability studies. Like, we, you know, it's clear that right now the Earth is in this very weird moment where there is a one species, us, that is severely altering and very rapidly altering the function of the coupled systems, again, the atmosphere, oceans, uh, ice, ground. Um, and so that's what the people call this the Anthropocene, the human dominated uh, era or, you know, yeah, or epoch of Earth's history. And so to understand that better, like not only what's happening, but how might we also, you know, deal with it? How might we kind of come out the other side intact? So, you know, so this question of planetary intelligence is going to be relevant to Earth's history. It's going to be relevant to Earth's history now or what we face now. And it's also going to be relevant towards thinking about other planets in the universe and looking for life there. 
Okay, so some historical preliminaries. So the idea of the biosphere and what of the technosphere, which is, so the biosphere total of life on the earth, the technosphere now is the sum total of our technological systems. Um, uh, uh, but these ideas go back a ways, actually. The biosphere was first um, introduced by the great Russian geophysicist, geochemo, biogeochemo physicist, Vladimir Vernatsky, who like is not very well known in the West, but probably deserves to be up there with, you know, Einstein and and um, and uh, Darwin in terms of his recognition of the role that life plays in planetary history. Um, so the biosphere, the idea of the biosphere was Vernatsky. He had already anticipated the idea that our technology is becoming so powerful that it is going to be another layer that is going to be rat that is going to wrap around the planet and alter the planet's function. Um, and then out of that, uh, for, via James Lovelock and Lynn Margellis, was the idea of Gaia, that if you looked at the biosphere, the biosphere, you should look at the Earth as being, you know, in, almost in a sense, a living entity, right? That, that life hijacks the planet for its own ends. And so the Gaia hypothesis was that the life through these... Uh, can, you know, just really take over the Earth's functions and will, you know, can do things like keep the earth at a reasonable temperature, even though the sun is continually heating up, you know, that it just, the earth, life will keep the earth in, in conditions, climate, etc. conditions that keep the earth habitable for life. Um, so, you know, these are historical preliminaries that we're going to lean on. So if we go to the next slide, this is a little bit more about the Gaia theory. So Gaia theory is the idea that the biosphere co-evolves with the geospheres, they, uh, they evolve together. So the bio life and the planet, the biosphere and the geospheres evolve together to form a regulate, self-regulating complex system that maintains and perpetuates habitable conditions on the planet. So there's the idea that in some sense, you know, the earth is kind of like a cell. It's not really, that's not really what they meant, but metaphorically that, you know, you've got, it's a complex system and it's a complex system that can exert self-regulatory behavior. Okay, so next slide. So now the uh, Gaia hypothesis was not something that was science at the time when it was first proposed in the 80s, they, people were very uh, uh, happy with, scientists were very happy with. And in some sense, it was because of uh, these two, people like these two. This is Oberon and Morning Glory Zell Ravenheart. And I'm sure they're very nice people, but I'm gonna make fun of them. Um, uh, and uh, so they were both, uh, I just found them on the internet. They're priests and priestesses of Gaia. So the thing about Gaia is the idea took hold. It became very new agey, you know, that uh, Mother Earth, you know, we should all sing songs to her. And uh, that is actually, if you look at this picture closely, that is a unicorn. Yeah. So somebody took a goat and glued a, a horn on its head. Um, and so it was just that, you know, so scientists, unfortunately, because of what happened, a lot of biologists and earth scientists saw Gaia as being this kind of new age woo idea. So you know, kind of got a bad name. But what happened actually was that the basic idea of Gaia, which is that the uh, biosphere exerts strong feedbacks on um, uh, on the Earth, actually got complete. It's the, it's the foundation of climate science. You can't do climate science without understanding uh, the biosphere. So, you know, what happened was Gaia theory morphed into what we now call Earth Systems Science, ESS. Um, and is now, you know, so it's it's still not clear whether the whether 
the biosphere really exerts full self-regulation. That may not be true, but that the that the um, biosphere exerts very, very strong feedbacks through networks, vast, deep networks of of you know uh, microbial and plant interactions, you know, with the air and with the water. That part is, you know, that's just like standard theory now. So that I'm going to use that as a background for what I'm now going to talk about. We'll go to the next slides. So, you know, our proposal for planet for planetary intelligence is that it had five properties. If you actually got planetary intelligence, it would have properties of emergence, information flow on networks, uh, semantic information rather than just the usual information we use in computers, that it would be a complex adaptive system and that it would um, uh, it would uh, show what is called autopoiesis. So let me quickly go through these. So emergence is just the idea that, um, you know, that, that systems, if they're complex enough, you can get new behaviors. You can get things that you couldn't predict from just looking at the atoms, say. You, you know, I can have, you can give me everything I need to know about atoms and I still won't be able to predict a cell, okay? So that you can, the, the uh, planetary intelligence would be an emergent property of the, all the other lower level systems that um, go into it, that make it up. So now we go to the next slide. So information flow on networks, the idea would be that there's these chemical networks. There are the physical networks of mass being moved around by, you know, rainfall. And, um, you know, there's all these different uh, chemical and physical networks that the biosphere is deeply part of, has created, and that it's information flowing through those networks. That's sort of how planetary intelligence manifests. The information flows through those networks in response to that information, the networks change their properties, evolve, adapt, and that is how planetary intelligence, you know, appears. All right, now we'll move to the next uh, slide, which is that what's important here is that we're talking about information, but we're not talking just about the, inf like what's the information in your computer. We're talking about what's called semantic information, information that has meaning. Um, and I won't go into this in great detail. This is something we just got a big Templeton grant to study. But it's the idea that, you know, information has to mean something to somebody in order for it to do anything. And so the idea is that the planetary intelligence, the planet as a whole, you know, through these networks responds to the information. There's meaning in the information and it, that, that is what drives the changes in the systems. That has how the intelligence exerts itself. Now we're not talking about like the idea that there's, you know, the whole planet sits there and says like, oh, there's too much oxygen in the atmosphere. I better reduce it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like sort of cognitive systems in the sense of a of you know there are systems by which the information can be recognized and acted upon it doesn't have to be like conscious thinking for complex adaptive systems i'm not going to go into this at all other than saying that you know it's the complex complex systems all of life is a complex adaptive system um and it's very different from just thinking about you know, uh, uh, it's not mechanics. It's not like just pure physics. There's much more going on. It's much richer. And uh, it's the real frontiers of science. Okay, the last view here is what's called autopoiesis. So this comes from a um, uh, 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 researcher like uh, Francisco Varela, who established the idea that, you know what, one of the things that really makes life central, it's not just reproduction and genes, it's, it's, it's self-maintenance and self-creation, right? A cell has to create the membrane, right? Has to continually create and maintain the membrane, which is what allows the cell to continually create and maintain the membrane, right? The, the, the path 
for, you know, life has to continually under precarious conditions, recreate itself and maintain itself. Um, and so what we're going to say is like, if, if a planet were to have intelligence, it would have to have, it would be auto, auto poetic. Um, and actually would have all five of these characteristics. So now very briefly, I just want to talk about the idea. Let's apply these ideas to the earth at different, uh, uh points in its history. Um, so the first one is the idea that, you know, uh, life and the planet have been co-evolving for a long time. This slide just sort of shows you the different things that have happened with co-evolution. Uh, co the biggest example is uh, oxygen. There was, when the earth formed, there was no oxygen in its atmosphere. There was no oxygen in the atmosphere after life formed. There was no oxygen in the atmosphere for a billion years, at least after life formed. It was only because of the invention of a particular form of photosynthesis that life started pumping oxygen into the atmosphere. And once that occurred, the entire trajectory of the planet changed. The chemistry of the, of the rocks changed because there was so much oxygen. So the idea is that, you know, the biosphere started off probably being what we would call immature. Originally, when, the, when life just got started, the biosphere didn't have, there wasn't enough of the biosphere and it hadn't evolved the feedback loops to be able to exert control over planetary evolution. But eventually, and then we'll go to the next slide now, eventually the biosphere matured, meaning it developed those uh, complex um, uh, network of feedbacks that it actually started began to exert control. So this is when, you know, after say a billion years or who knows, half a billion years after life forms, you begin to get the first, you know, uh, 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 example or you know instantiations of of planetary intelligence of this complex biospheric system exert responding to the planetary conditions and exerting control some control over the uh, the biosphere. So you know I'm just going down the list here. Um, I, I won't later on we can go back and I can explain these slides to you. But this the idea that there's an immature biosphere which matures into a mature biosphere and the hallmark of the mature biosphere is planetary intelligence. Um, so it's got all of, you know, I'm checking off the boxes here, all those five, the mature biosphere has all the characteristics that I said of, uh, um, of, uh, planetary intelligence. So now let's go on to where we are now. Um, so this is what I'll call it act two. So right now, just recently over the last hundred years, the earth has developed, has evolved a technosphere and that's the sum total of all the interlinked set of communication, transportation, bureaucratic and other systems that act to metabolize fossil fuels and, and energy resources. And so, you know, it's the sum total of all the technological uh, um, uh, aspects of what we've created. And, the, you know, just like the biosphere, it's more any technology, the technosphere is much larger than any individual technology. And it's actually much larger than any individual human being. Um, and we know that, like, all, look at all of the uh, shipping routes right? The world is crisscrossed by the activity of our minds. Um, right now, where you're standing, the, you're, that room you're sitting in is literally permeated by wa waves of thought. And that is literal in the sense of the wireless communications that is flowing through your body and radio waves. Climate change is the most obvious example of the technosphere, of the impact of the technosphere, but you could go on quite a ways to talk about it. So the idea is, okay, we've got a technosphere, but now let's move to the next slide. It's an immature technosphere. So what I mean by that is while our current 
early Anthropocene phase of planetary evolution. It has key features of planetary intelligence, right? I mean, there's clearly intelligence in the technology, but it lacks the most important part of, a, of, of planetary intelligence. It's not autopoietic. It's not self-maintaining. What we know is, is that the way the current technosphere is, um, is not set up to maintain itself. It's actually destroying the conditions it needs to survive, right? So what the biosphere learned how to do was be able to change the trajectory of the Earth's evolution to maintain the conditions it needed to exist, but that the technosphere is doing the opposite. It's actually destroying those conditions. So now let's go to the next slide. So the idea would be that we are right now in an immature technosphere that does not display the full complement of characteristics you need for planetary intelligence. So that's our problem, essentially. So, okay, so let's now go further. Uh, so let's think about the both the human future and in general, think about, you know, uh, uh, other, other civilizations on other worlds if they exist, right? So we're very interested in looking for what are called techno signatures, signatures of techno spheres. Uh, this is something I am interested in working in. And the best way of doing this is not by looking for radio signals, beacons that somebody, some alien civilization has put out, like sending us a message that has the cure for cancer. The best thing to do is look for unintentional signatures. To look things that like, you know, civilization is just going about its business, being a civilization. And we can see planets now from across light years. Can we see their activity? And so, all right, let's go to the next slide. If we're doing that, what that means is we will pro if we're going to see other civilizations, you can work out the statistics, you're probably going to see older civilizations, much older than ours. So are there older civilizations? Well, the hypothesis is, is that if you're an immature technosphere, you're not going to make it very long. So in order to make it for a long time, the civilizations we're going to see must be mature technospheres that have developed the full property of planetary intelligence, where the technosphere has become embedded into the biosphere in a way that doesn't diminish the biosphere's capacity for existence. The technosphere has become autopoietic. So if we go to the next slide, so, you know, a mature technosphere, so this is an, our image of a mature technosphere, right? It's a high-tech world that also is sustainable in terms of its biosphere. Um, and it's got, you know, it's got emergence and information flow, et cetera, et cetera, but it's also autopoietic. It's also the technosphere is, is not destroying the conditions it needs to survive. And what are those? That's the biosphere, right? Because the technosphere sits on top of the biosphere. So, um, so the idea is that just like there, there is a transition between an immature and mature biosphere in terms of planetary intelligence, there has to be a, a, a transition between an immature and a mature technosphere if technospheres are, are going to survive. And that's relevant to us, right? If we don't figure out how to have a mature technosphere or transition to a mature technosphere, we're not going to last long. So uh, that brings us to the next slide. Is this the idea is, you know, we've got these five properties um, and, you know, from a pure geosphere where there's no life at all, you know, one to a mature, immature biosphere, mature biosphere, immature technosphere, mature technosphere, and the idea that they all, they have different levels of these five properties. And the more you have, the more planetary intelligence you have. So the purpose of this graph was just schematically showing what we, how we imagined this evolution of a planet with uh, life on it, uh, how it might go in terms of planetary intelligence. So now, um, uh, so this is just, we can come back to this when people ask questions, but this is just graphically the idea about how you go from an immature biosphere, which would be a world that 
you know, basically this is the, you know, the earth uh, 4 billion years ago to the top, top left. And then bottom left would be a mature biosphere. Top right is an immature technosphere. Bottom right is a mature, is a mature technosphere. So just go to the last slide here. The idea is of, you know, that where we're headed, where we need to head is what I would call an awakened world, a world where the technosphere is, you know, exerts the full capacities of planetary intelligence. Like we know that we're intelligent, we have some degree of intelligence, and that is, uh, you know, manifested in our technology. But, you know, our technology, the technosphere we've built from it is still stupid. It's not a smart technosphere. And if we're going to make it, we're going to need to embody, you know, we're going to need to guide the technosphere so that it can embody planetary intelligence. So I'll end there and I'll be happy to take questions for the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so. Well, thank you, Adam, so much. This was so interesting and um, uh, quite a, that's why I invited you, um, quite a, for me, another way to think about um, intelligence and the planet and life. So uh, it's, it's really exciting and interesting. I don't know if you know Howard Bloom. Um, yes, yes, I know. He, I, I don't know that it's not exact. Like it's not <clears throat> too similar, but some principles remind me a little bit. Um, uh, we we had them here about um, how he thinks, like uh, life kind of, or that that there is a group evolution. Basically, mm -hmm. it's a, it's it's different, but. Um, but I, I I don't know. I think there is like this community kind of overlap yeah. thinking. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. You have to think about the whole system. You can't think about just the evolution of, you know, individual species or, or you know, there's, yeah, there's group selection. It's, this is really thinking about evolution on a much broader, you know, a much broader canvas. So do you receive, like, what's the feedback you receive? I imagine, because Howard described that he had a lot of, you know, backlash thinking of what, when he, you know, wrote his book. Um, um, I don't know, is there, what, what's the feedback you get? You know, I've actually gotten pretty positive feedback, which I was really surprised by. I thought everybody was going to be like, you know, dude, you're smoking too much weed, you know, or, you know, like this is like, you need to get off your meditation couch. And, but I've actually, I mean, what's interesting, this idea has really, um, people in the, and this just may be the nature of the community in the astrobiological community. Um, you know, even people who I would have thought would have been like, get out of here, have actually... So I have not yet received... You know, I have not... Yeah, the, 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 the response... And we you know we did the article in The Atlantic, too. So this actually went... You know, this went... Um, yeah, this went to the broader... It wasn't just in academia. Uh, we wrote an article for The Atlantic, um, which, you know, got a fair amount of attention. So, yeah, I'm surprised. Well, I'm I'm happy that things changed apparently, and you got uh, positive feedback. Um, that's wonderful. But and instead of me just taking over, uh, please raise your hand, ask questions in the chat. Um, and I know um, Laniakas, you joined the stage. Um, uh, did you want to ask a question? Hi, thank you, Katarina. Always uh really interesting the rooms that you have. 
Um, Adam, congratulations. I, I think your work is, uh, is amazing. What you guys are doing, I think, is great. Um, Thank you. I think, uh, raising awareness around uh, the ecological paradigm and the holistic uh, uh, paradigm is absolutely key. Um, we, I, I, this is based on like my personal research, but like as an as an organization together, we talk about the evergreen shift because what we found is um, when we talking about when we're talking about um, um, density of communication um, uh, in terms of a uh, life living life living systems, right mm -hmm. from the rainforest till now. It seems like um, the evergreen shift is the proof that like nature has solved that a long time ago. Right. And we've been trying to raise awareness about the same process and on and the um, cybernetic ecology, which mm -hmm. I think you, you mm -hmm. sum up as the um, technosphere. Right. Um, and the reason we, we describe it as a cybernetic ecology is to raise awareness of the cybernetic science aspect right. of its potential. Right. Um, and so uh, I really, my question was, have you guys looked at um, this evergreen shift and, and, and seeing how we, cause I, I, I feel like I, I want to ask you if you guys have, and I want to also invite you guys, you know, would love to invite some collaboration here because what we've been trying to do is essentially bring um, some awareness to um, the uh, Homeland Security about what that means to, um, for, uh, for, for the future of cybersecurity, right? Mm -hmm. um, cause right now we, we, we have an internet that is really an access internet. It looks at the grid kind of like a, uh, just a transmission system for, right. uh, but really what we have is a cybernetic ecology where feedback is almost infinite, right? Um, and we have, and we're putting sensors everywhere and we have smartphones. So the minute we went mobile, we became a proper cybernetic ecology because you're not a, just a static node, right? Right, you're, right. You're mobile and you have wearable devices and cameras looking at behavior. So if you look at my bio, you'll see exactly what I'm trying to say. So um, I guess my question is, have you, considering how much work you guys do as a, at the planetary level, if you've looked at um, the rainforest and evergreen shift as a way to help um, add no, this is, this is this is news to me. So if you could send me, I'd be happy if you would send me some information. Yes, I would um, love. I, I would, you know, I'm a, I would love to. Yeah, I'm a big fan of of cybernetics, of the idea of cybernetics. You know, um, Gregory Bateson is one of my heroes. Um, so yeah, no, no, I'd like to, I'd like to learn more. Sure. So please, uh, you know, send me, send me some information. I'd like to look at it. I will. Your contact is on the uh, document there or, uh, is it, I don't know. It should be, uh, you know, uh, my email is a Frank 20. Go ahead. Yeah, I can, I can introduce you if, uh, when you just send me your email address and I'll write the introduction, introduction email to both. Okay, great. Katarina, that would be great. Thank you so much. Great. Uh, always looking for. I. I'm always happy when collaborations start from mm -hmm. here. Right. Uh, it makes me really happy. So, uh, Brent and Einar, please go ahead. Ask your questions. Hi. Good afternoon, uh, Katarina. Thanks again for another uh, amazing guest and a great presentation, uh, Adam. Uh, I was wondering what you make of, um, one of what I think are, is probably one of the more far out uh, topics in astrobiology and, and the idea of technosignatures, which is uh, directed panspermia. Um, what you make of this topic, um, you know, thinking about planets, you know, possibly as a, as a sort of really large scale organism, would they want to potentially reproduce? Uh, you know, we have uh, 
some suggestions that certain uh, types of fungal spores or tardigrades even can survive the, the uh, vacuum of space. And uh, just a lot of, uh, you know, threads that I've heard about this uh, topic thrown out there and just wondering what you make of all of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting idea, right? Can you extend this to galactic scales, right? You know, it's, I, and just like, uh, you know, if it did, you'd have the, you know, the galaxy thinking over like very long time scales because, you know, if there is, if, you know, so, so panspermia would be the idea that you have a, well, there, right, there's directed panspermia where, you know, if, if human beings were to go settle other worlds, right, if we were to settle, you know, a planet around, you know, um, Vega or something, that's directed panspermia on one level, right? You're actually, you know, in some sense, what I always like to think about, I always like to say, if we ever settle Mars, it's not human beings settle Mars, settling Mars, it's, Earth, it's Earth's biosphere settling Mars. We would just be the agents of Earth's biosphere extending a green tendril you know, over to Mars and getting more Earth life on, on Mars. Um, so I think it's a really, so there's that idea, which is just a little bit more, you know, easy to understand. You have intelligent technological species. But the other idea that you're sort of raising is that, yeah, with panspermia, regular panspermia, it's just that, you know, a, a, you get an asteroid impact on Earth and it blows uh, a chunk of rock that's got microbes in it out of the Earth and out of the solar system. And then that rock wanders around with the spores, you know, in hibernation, crashes onto another planet and boom, you've got, you know, Earth life there. Um, when you look at that, you see that it, it is, at least the papers I've read, it's hard. Like it's the, the odds of really seeding uh, planets this way with life, it's pretty rare. It would be a very, very rare event. At least what we can tell by how much, you know, the, the, when you try and do work out the energetics and the timing of things. Um, but it is, I think it's a really, uh, whether you're talking about the directed part where it's like actual, you know, technology settling it or the, the, the you know, just the meteorites and, and, and spores. Either way, it's, it can't be, you can't rule it out. And it's super interesting. Thank you very much. Uh, any, and just a, a one quick bonus question, if you, if you don't mind. How would that go about being tested? Yeah, see there, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not, you know, unless you had that, it would, it, it could be very hard. Unless, because what you'd actually need is you'd actually need to see whether or not the life on planet X and the life on planet Y that are, you know, different stars had similar characteristics. If that did, then you'd be able to like, oh my God, they came from the same place. They have the same similar uh, origin. Um, and, you know, until you can actually go there and pick it up, that could be very difficult to under, you know, finding life via biosignatures or technosignatures telescopically, you're not really going to get much information about the life itself. You're going to get the information about its effect on the planet. And that could be very, quite generic. But it's possible maybe you would see, you know, you'd see alterations on the planet that are on, on planets that are, you know, very specific and you'd see them on very different planets and that itself might indicate something like that. Excellent. Thank you again uh, so much for, for your appearance today and uh, Katarina for your, uh, hosting another great room. Okay, I think uh, you have three more minutes or so. Yep. Yep. Okay, yep. so Einar, uh, you have the last question. Yeah, hi, Katarina. Thank you very much. Um, hi, Adam. Um, I have two questions. So, if, li um, if life formed, uh, 
when it comes to proteins and pressure. Um, where does this come into the picture? And uh, uh, a more important question to me, <laughs> actually, is like uh, your thoughts around into this uh, publication. Yeah, thank you. Wait, I'm actually, I'm, I missed the first, what was, if you could repeat the questions again, I'm sorry, I just missed them. Um, so let's say that uh, a protein basically uh, made under pressure comes to um, where life forms and evolve. Um, any thoughts around that? And also the- Well, I guess, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Like a protein, are you just saying like a, if a, so I just guess I don't understand, how would a protein, how would a protein, are you saying that if you like you dropped a protein onto, you know, like in a meteorite, say, a, mo a, prote you know, a protein falls onto a planet that has life already? Uh, yeah, it's being created uh, as uh, a part of the, 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 the chemical uh, substances uh, in a planet. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I mean, you know, it's not clear what, what form, you know, so on, on Earth, life has, you know, the molecular machinery is pro is DNA, which, you know, um, makes, uh, you know, leads to proteins and the proteins are sort of the, the structures that that sort of, you know, the scaffolding on which life is built and the machinery that life is uses. But it's not clear to me that that, you know, I think probably life is going to be pretty ingenious and I probably there's going to be lots and lots of different versions of that. So I'm not even sure I would expect to see proteins anywhere else uh, other than, you know, that, that, that the, the idea that proteins are sort of your building blocks may be very unique to how life formed on Earth. Ah, that's very interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, but uh, what about the Kadashev scale? Uh, any thoughts? Oh, yeah, 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 right. Okay, so right, right. The, um, so, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, my pronunciation of it is the Kardashev scale. So the Kardashev scale was this idea that as civilizations progress, they use progressively larger amounts of energy. So a type one, you know, uses all the energy that falls, uh, solar energy that falls on the earth. A type two would, you know, basically build a sphere around a Dyson sphere around the sun and capture all of the sun's energy. And a type three would capture all the energy from all the stars in a galaxy. Um, you know, that was an interesting idea, the Kardashev scale. Um, I'm a little bit uh, suspicious of it just because, you know, it's sort of... One reason, I'll tell you, I've, on, on planetary scales, I think it's wrong because it's an energy-based scale. It only thinks about how much energy is involved, but it doesn't think about entropy, right? And as we've seen, you know, if you tried to harvest all of the, you know, the, the, the climate change, the Anthropocene, tells you that, you know, you can't harvest all of the energy that falls on the Earth and put it to work because of the second law of thermodynamics. You generate waste and heat and chaos and disruption by using that energy. So, you know, I think one of the interesting lessons of, uh, of, of the Anthropocene is that that kind of, you know, pure energy, how much energy can we harvest, is just doesn't really work for planets. You know, as I like to say, you can't bring a planet to heal which is kind of that sort of 1960s version of, you know, the Kardashev scale. But you can probably bring it a plan, which is, you know, somehow you've got a, whatever you're doing with your civilization, you have to integrate into the biosphere or else the biosphere will just bite you in the butt. 
Thank you. But doesn't this mean that actually we as human beings thinks, think that um, in a, I don't know, pardon my English, but um, that we mm. do think of energy in terms of physics in a different way that we actually can extract the amount of energy. Well, we're not thinking... Because I think we're, go ahead. Yeah, because there are a lot of energy all around. You can, you can basically, uh, Paul, you can have enough energy to provide uh, uh, lights for a whole city if you know how to extract energy. Right, but the, the, the second law of thermodynamics, this is what's interesting. Yeah, and that's a problem. You can have all the energy in the world, but the second law of thermodynamics says you can't use all of that energy without having consequences. There are consequences to energy use. Exactly. And that's what the that's what the Anthropocene is all about, learning the consequences of our energy harvesting. Exactly. So this means yep. that what we're being taught in school does not really fit in well they need to the, add right you need to add the idea yeah. you need to not, yeah. not just talk about energy but also entropy yeah of course but this means that we are not really there yet because no. we are we are learning no different things uh when it comes to metaphysics and uh, and whatnot also uh but yeah thank you very much thank you sure well, I should probably get going because I've got to get to my, my talk. Yeah, so. so thank you so much uh, for coming. And I uh, hope you come back one day. Sure, uh, we could sure. talk for yeah. hours. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank sure. you. Okay, take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye, Adam. Okay. And, yeah, thank you, everyone, for coming, asking questions. And happy Friday, happy weekend, happy Halloween. Um, <laughs> happy everything. Um, uh, we have a room again next Tuesday, um, <clears throat> so I hope you, I hear you all back. And um, it's with Dr. Holtz um, talking about cytoplasmic phase architecture of the nuclear pore, uh, which will be really interesting. He's a really nice um, person and scientist. And then we'll have James Weiss, um, who discovered very rare microscopic species. He has like, how many, like, I don't know, a few tens of thousands of followers on YouTube. He makes like really cool um, microscopy YouTube videos. Um, Victoria and I check them out. And he's an independent researcher. He has a really interesting um, life story. He's a screenwriter, usually uh, does movies but he has a passion for science and uh, he collaborates with scientists at universities and he discovered a new a bunch of new species so uh, his life is really interesting and his uh, science so yeah i'll invite you and i'll share on twitter his youtube channel which uh, has really cool um, movies little videos about uh, his uh, research at home with his microscope at home and then we'll have Dr. Oliver, who will talk about um, um, uh, uh, hydrogen production um, from water using aluminum nanoparticles. And uh, then uh, we'll have uh, November 7th, Dr. Boyden at MIT. He's a very famous um, neuroscience technology developer 
who will talk about his work, how he develops tools that image and control the brain. Um, he's a really big deal. Um, check him out, out, Dr. Ed Boyden. But he is very humble and very nice at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to next week and I hope to hear you all back soon. Happy weekend. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Katarina. Clay, I closed the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.